It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. Well, the dark heart of the city, I don't know, it's the dark heart of the jungle here down in South Florida with 85 degrees at Christmas time and winters that last about two weeks. I'll tell you, it is pretty amazing. This is the Hour of Doom and Bloom. Well, I guess you realize by now that the lovely Nurse Amy is not with me today. Indeed, she is packing a a lot of kits, helping out the guys at the warehouse, the amazing warehouse of mystery where we do all of our medical kit magic. She is sort of flooded, and she's doing a lot of work over there, so I hope that you'll forgive that she's not here for at least most of the show. So welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an uplifting universe of unification in an uninviting world. I'm Joe Elton Endy, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. My lovely wife, Nurse Amy, the absent Nurse Amy, is an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, and together we are... The dynamic duo, we are the prodigious pair, we are the courageous couple, and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a wacky wallaby? Well, mate, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and educational purposes, for edutainment, and indeed do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider patient relationship exists nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urged their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. I still have to read that from a script because sure enough it is just something that I don't really quite like to say but it's something that I just gotta say I have an active medical license I want to keep it hey of course you know what 
You want the active, latest technology, the latest and the greatest, to help you win the battle against disease and trauma. But what if modern medicine's get up and go has got up and went due to some major catastrophe? Well, you just might wind up being the highest medical asset left to your family in times of trouble. And you might think it's too much to handle, but you know what? Somebody's got to do it. And it can be you. It can be you. Show the world that you've got more sense than the good Lord gave a bag of donuts. And get some training. Learn something, won't you? And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? Poor Nurse Amy is working her fingers to the bone, packing her little heart out in the fulfillment of our mission. And that mission is to put a medically prepared person in every family. So I'll tell you about our kits. They are often imitated. You'll see a lot of kits on the internet, but they are never equaled. I guarantee you that you check our kits compared to other kits, and you will agree that they're the ones that you should have in your medical storage. They're going to help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll make your home safer, your workplace safer, maybe even your school or church safer, and they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner, not any other company as far as I know, can say the exact same thing. You know, uh, hey, yeah, I won't want you to take my word that our kits are the awesome, awesomest kits in town. I want you to check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just look at our special HAS, or HSA rather, FSA section in the store. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so drop us a line, Clementine, and connect with the geezer and the goddess. It is so easy, and you can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, almost at 6,000 members. Also, we have a Doom and Bloom page at 16,000 or 17,000 members. It's called Doom and Bloom, uh, TM, I think. Although now we're an actual registered tra trademark, so we're actually an R. And you can follow us at Twitter, or on Twitter, at Prepper Show. Don't forget our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. We've got a new video that's coming up in the next day or so. And our other podcast, all about current events, American Survival Radio, now broadcast from many land-based radio stations throughout the U.S. of A. Hey, give me a second to put a shameless plug in for our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. We have put up our latest book now on Amazon. It's called Alton's on Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Now, that's a mouthful, but that what it is is a detailed look into the antibiotics that you can get online and the infections that they are helpful to cure or prevent. It's about 300 pages. It, it talks all about the antibiotics that you can actually obtain in the form of uh, sometimes of fish or avian antibiotics, things that I have written about in many, many, many different places over many, many years. And it is something that I believe if our preparedness community had a supply of antibiotics in their medical storage, if everybody had that, well, then if something really did happen, we would save some lives un that would unnecessarily be lost because of simple infections that can be nipped in the bud with these 
miracle drugs. Well, of course, they are not candy, though. You have to use them wisely, and that's what I spend much of the book talking about is how to wisely use antibiotics in times of trouble and how to identify infectious diseases that are commonly seen in situations where the, you're knocked off the grid. So that's something that you should consider. It's called Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Uh, we talk about all sorts of stuff, how bacteria cause disease, how the immune system works to fight infection, many different disease-causing bacteria and bugs telling bacterial from viral disease and epidemic and pandemic diseases, how antibiotics work, the different antibiotic families, and all about antibiotic resistance, how to use antibiotics wisely. Uh, and we go into detail about the individual antibiotics and the diseases each one's treat with dosing, side effects, allergies, pregnancy, and pediatric considerations thrown in. Also, information about what expiration dates are all about and how to establish a good sick room for epidemic settings. Also, dealing with wound infections, wound care, and a good list, a big list of supplies. So, as I often say, if there's no ambulance coming to render aid to you, your loved ones or hospital to treat the sick in times of trouble, you may wind up being the end of the line when it comes to the well-being of loved ones. So just as learning how to stop bleeding is important, well, learning about infection and the medicines that treat it will save lives in difficult times. You won't regret having Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the layman's guide to available antibacterials and austere settings in your survival library. Now remember, the information in our book is meant for situations where there is not a functioning modern medical system. If there is, get to a certified medical professional, ASAP. That's right. I wanted to talk a little bit, we talked a little bit about food safety a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to talk about some food safety myths that we should expose. Uh, we all do our best to serve our family's food that's healthy, safe, of course, but there are some com common misconceptions about food safety. It might surprise you. Let's talk about a few of them. One is that food poisoning is not a big deal. That just tough it out for a day or two and then it's over. Well, sometimes that's the case, but many people don't know that some foodborne illnesses actually lead to long-term health conditions. And there are about 3,000 Americans a year that die from foodborne illness, at least 100,000 that are hospitalized. And that means that there must be millions of cases of, in which people don't end up in the hospital. So the truth of the matter is, is that it is serious stuff, and it's important for you to follow some of the recommendations that I made in our show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's another myth here. It's okay to thaw meat on the counter. Since it starts out frozen, bacteria isn't really a problem. Well, truth, bacteria grows very rapidly at room temperatures. So the counter is never a place that you should thaw foods. you got to thaw foods the right way in the refrigerator, in cold water maybe. Some people even cook it right in its frozen state. That's possible, but just remember that that's going to take at least 50% longer uh, to cook if you're indeed going to try that. Another myth, when cleaning the kitchen, the more bleach you use, the better. More bleach kills more bacteria, so it's better for my family. And the truth is there's really no advantage to using more bleach than you need to. And I would say one teaspoon of liquid uh, unscented bleach 
to about a quart of water, maybe a tablespoon to a gallon. That's probably all you really need to put together something reasonable. Now, if you want a, a slightly stronger solution, you can put one part of bleach to nine parts, nine parts of water. Perfectly fine. Even, yeah, you could even use that to clean a sick room in a pandemic setting. And so this is simple stuff. You can use, of course, the regular bleach with the sodium hypochlorite, or you can use pool shock uh, uh, to make bleach. And that's, but you won't make actual household bleach. You'll make calcium hypochlorite solution, but still has the same effect. And you can look on our website at doomandbloom.net for the exact formula for how to do that. Another myth is that I don't need to wash fruits and vegetables if I'm going to peel them. You know, if you have a rind or if you have a peel to it, well, just peel it and, and you're cool. Well, the truth is because it's easy to transport bacteria from the peel or rind that you're cutting to the inside of your fruits and veggies, it's pretty important to wash all of your produce, even if you plan to peel it. So if you're peeling, okay, you're peeling the rind or you're peeling the peel off of a fruit, let's say, well, the truth of the matter is that that un that unpe that that peeled fruit winds up being in your hand and indeed becoming contaminated with bacteria. Now, to get rid of bacteria on meat, on meat, poultry, or seafood, you got to rinse off the juices and water first. And the truth of the matter is that actually, washing meat, poultry, or seafood with water can increase your chance of food poisoning. That's pretty amazing. To hard to believe, but it is actually true that by splashing juices or any bacteria that might be contained in the juices onto your work surfaces in your kitchen, onto your sink and counters, well, that's pretty scary. It can actually cause a big chance for contamination. Here's another myth. The only reason to let food sit after it's been microwaved is to make sure you don't burn yourself on food that's too hot. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that if you let microwave food sit for a few minutes, so that we call that standing time or rest time, that helps your food actually cook more completely by allowing colder areas of food some time to absorb heat from hotter areas of food. So believe it or not, it's okay once you've microwaved food to let it sit for a few minutes to help your food cook a little better. Uh, another myth, leftovers are safe to eat until they smell bad. Well, gosh, guys, you should know better than that. The kinds of bacteria that cause food poisoning, honestly, the funny thing about that is that that's a myth also. How about that? That the kinds of bacteria that cause food poisoning don't necessarily affect the look, smell, or taste of food. To be safe, you got to use safe storage times. Uh, that's something that we have in uh, our latest article on, on food storage and food safety, we actually have a chart uh, to let you know exactly the right time to, to throw food out. So we actually have information on that for you. Just look at doomandbloom.net. It'll be one of the last few articles that we've put out. Um, another myth, once food has been cooked, all the bacteria has been killed, so I don't need to worry once it's done. Well, the truth is the possibility of bacterial growth actually increases after cooking, because the drop in temperature allows bacteria to thrive. That's why keeping cooked food warm, and you gotta warm it to the right temperature, that's critical for food safety. Another one, marinades. How about marinades? A lot, a lot of people like to marinate their food, gives them a really good taste. Well, marinades are thought to be acidic, which kills bacteria. So it's okay to marinate food on the counter. No, wrong. 
even in the presence of acidic marinade, bacteria can grow very rapidly at room temperatures. A lot of bacteria have no problem with an acidic environment. To marinate foods safely, you always have to marinate them in the refrigerator. So that's a very important. So slow down the development of bacteria in your food. Uh, and one more myth I'm going to go ahead and tell you about. If I really want my produce to be safe, I got to wash fruits and veggies with detergent or soap before I use them. Some people believe actually that factories do exactly that. Well, the truth of the matter is it's best not to use soaps or detergents on produce since these products can linger on foods or make foods just not safe for consumption. Just use clear running water. That's actually the best way to remove bacteria and wash produce safely. So let's see, what do we got here? Well, you know what? I haven't talked uh, in a long time about asthma. I think I missed it last spring. I usually talk about it in the spring, and it is something that's very, very important. It's one of the most common medical issues facing the U.S. population today is asthma. Uh, it's a chronic condition. If you don't know what asthma is, it affects the airways, the tubes that transport air to your lungs. It makes it very difficult to breathe and can be can be very serious. Almost 20 million people, or just Americans, not talking about the rest of the world, 20 million Americans suffer from respiratory issues due to asthma and its complications. Matter of fact, it's the most common cause of chronic illness in kids. And so it's very, very important. In a survival setting, stress, exposure to new allergens, uh, allergy-causing substances are called allergens, and hygiene issues, uh, they're just going to make things worse, let's face it. I usually write about asthma when pollen counts are high, that's like in the spring, but winter can be trouble as well. Not so much outdoors, but with the accumulation of pet dander, smoke, dust, molds indoors. People spend a lot of time inside, and sure enough, all of those uh, allergens wind up getting into very high concentrations indoors, especially in places where there are a lot of people that are hanging out. So that's something that's very important to know, that when people are with asthma are exposed to a substance to which they're allergic, that they're going to wind up suffering. The airways become inflamed, they swell, constrict, they fill up with all this inflammatory mucus, and it causes less air to get to the lungs. And when that happens, well, you develop shortness of breath, tightness in the chest, not to mention wheezing and coughing. In rare circumstances, well, the airways can become so constricted that a person could suffocate from a lack of oxygen. This is what we call status asthmaticus. Now, I have had the misfortune of having to see people in status asthmaticus. I actually found uh, or treated a woman with status asthmaticus in Jackson Memorial Hospital many, many years ago. Poor thing was about nine months, almost nine months pregnant, wound up uh, leaving the hospital with a bad asthma attack because she had to take care of her kids. It was a, a sad state of affairs. I told her, my God, you could die if you don't allow us to treat your your asthma. It's getting worse. And sure enough, later that night, after my shift was over, she came in and they wound up having to code her because she was just so spasmed in her airways that she could not breathe at all. They had trouble intubating her or failed to intubate her. And indeed, she died and wound up they wound up having to do what we call an agonal cesarean section, which is what you do after a person has been declared not 
living or not survivable, and unfortunately the baby did not survive either. So one of the great uh, tragedies that I have I've dealt with in in my career. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of things can cause asthma. Why did she have asthma? I don't know. She was a lady from Haiti, and I don't know. She may have come over recently and been exposed to some allergens that she just was were just the exact wrong ones for her to be exposed to. Who knows? But there are a lot of different ones that can trigger an asthma attack. We talked about some of them: animal dander, either pets or wild animals, uh, dust, uh, dust mites, mold and mildew. Smoke, cigarette smoke does it to some people. Uh, various pollens, that's the most common cause in the spring. Uh, severe stress, uh, of course, pollutants in the air. I can just imagine what it's like in places like Beijing and uh, some Chinese cities where they have no control over the stuff that gets into the air. Some medicines even do it. And believe it or not, even exercise does it. Some people, if they are exercising rigorously, they wind up getting asthma attacks. It's pretty crazy. Now, there are a lot of myths associated with asthma. We talked about food safety myths. Here's some myths associated with asthma. One, asthma is contagious. Well, it's not contagious. It's not infectious in any way. It's not associated with an infection. It's confused sometimes with colds and pneumonia and things like that. But the truth is, it is not an infectious disease. You uh, and Here's another one here you'll grow out of it you probably have heard that a lot well the truth of the matter is is that that's also a myth it might become dormant for a time but you're always at risk for it to return so this is something that hopefully you hope that it doesn't or but it is always that risk now other people think that there's a major psychological component to having asthma attacks that's also a myth it is not all in your mind, ladies and gentlemen. It is a significant medical issue that indeed has physical responses, physical effects, and definitely an effect on your immune system. The truth is, this is not something that you should consider in all in your mind. Now, some people say that if you move to a new area, that your asthma will go away. And the truth is, is that it's sort of false, sort of true. It may go away for a while, but eventually you're likely to become sensitized to something else, and in that case, it can return. Now, here's one that's a myth that's actually a true myth. It's not a myth at all. Asthma is hereditary. It is indeed hereditary. If both parents have asthma, you've got a 70% chance of developing it compared to only 6% if neither parent has it. So it is something that does seem to go run in family. It's hard to say why that is. Some people may say that, well, you're exposed to the same allergens, the same allergy-causing substances, so that's why. Hard to say. Nobody knows for sure. Now, asthmatic symptoms could be different from attack to attack and from individual to individual. That's some of the symptoms we talked about, but they can also be seen in other things, heart conditions, other respiratory illnesses. So it's important to make the right diagnosis. So look for symptoms like cough, shortness of breath, wheezing. That's the thing. And something that usually comes on relatively quickly. Uh, chest tightness. And that's sometimes confused with coronary artery spasms. And that's uh, it's a big difference. You, have, you definitely have to make that. But those people shouldn't be wheezing. Uh, a rapid pulse rate, rapid respiration rate, that you'll see. You'll see people being anxious. I guess anybody who's, who's sort of hungry for air is going to be anxious. So that's uh, something that they teach you in CPR with regards to airway obstructions. And sort of the same thing can happen in the midst of a significant asthma attack. 
Now, besides these main symptoms, there are others that are signals of a life-threatening episode. Now, if you notice your patient is becoming, there's a change in color of their patient. They develop a blue-gray color, especially in the lips and the fingertips and the face. That's known as cyanosis, C-Y-A-N-O-S-I-S. Cyan is a basically a blue tint. And so a person with that condition is known as being cyanotic, and that person's in trouble. It takes them longer. In asthma, in the midst of an asthma attack, you'll notice that it takes longer for them to exhale than to inhale. Therefore, they take less inhales, inhalations per minute, and sure enough, it becomes more difficult to get the oxygen to your, your tissues. There, now, with asthma as it gets worse the wheezing takes on a higher pitch you can have a sort of a type of sound and then you can have a a sort of a higher pitch once a person has a high that high pitch it usually means that there's very little air getting through to their lungs and if somebody has spent enough time without adequate oxygen they'll you'll start seeing changes in mental status they'll be confused drowsy may lose consciousness, boy, you're, you're in big trouble. So if you're the medic, you got to use your stethoscope to listen to the lungs on both sides. You always compare both the, bo- the bottom of the lung to of one lung to the other, the middle of the lung to the other, uh, the top of the lung of one lung to the other. Do the same thing on the opposite sides. I have a, we teach that in one of our classes, how to uh, recognize things like pneumonia and bronchitis and things like that. If you ever have a group in part uh, some part of the country that we're going to be heading to that wants uh, one of our eight-hour classes you learn a lot in there and one of them is how to recognize uh, stethoscope findings in terms of lung disease now in a mild asthmatic attack the wheezes are going to be sort of loud and sort of musical uh, when the patient exhales. Now, as the asthma worsens, there's going to be less air passing through the airway, as I mentioned before, and the pitch is going to be higher, and it's not going to be as loud because less air is going through. If no air is passing through, well, you're not going to hear anything. And not even when you ask the patient to, in, to inhale, that person in, is in big trouble. Now, of course, there are a number of lab tests and x-rays and all sorts of stuff that are useful to evaluate uh, asthma but they're likely going to be inaccessible in a major disaster or a collapse situation. That's why it's so important to learn basic examination skills like what the things sound like on a stethoscope now. I mean, that's very important. The cornerstones of asthma treatment are the avoidance of allergens that trigger attacks and maintain the open airways you got to maintain open airways that is so important and you one way to do is with medications medications come in one or two forms there are drugs that give give quick relief from an attack and drugs that control the frequency of asthmatic episodes so quick relief from the severity of a particular attack and hopefully drugs that decrease the number of attacks that you get the frequency of attacks your group members with asthma should have accumulated a good collection of inhalers, I hope, quick relief drugs that open airways known as bronchodilators called uh, Ventolin, Albuterol, Preventil, among many different others. These drugs open airways in a very short period of time, give significant relief. You definitely, if you have people with problems like that, you should always have a good supply of them. 
this is something that's very important. Physicians are usually sympathetic to requests for extra prescriptions from their asthmatic patients. That's something that's important. Also, if for people that are on these bronchodilators, if you notice that the patient wind up who's having an asthma attack and is taking these, meta, these inhalers, they may have a rapid heartbeat. And that actually is a common side effect of the medicine. So don't be surprised. It's not an allergy. It's not anything else. It is just an effect of the medicine itself. Now, if you find yourself using quick relief asthma medications more than twice a week, the truth is you probably should be a candidate for daily control therapy. Now, everybody's a little different in terms of physicians as to when they want to start that or when they don't, but these drugs work when you take them daily, but not when you take them just when you have a problem. And if you take them, they do decrease the number of episodes. They're usually some form of inhaled steroid. And they're long and uh, it's not just steroids, they're long acting bronchodilators, airway openers as well, such as Atrovent. And another family of drug is known as, and this is like you can hardly pronounce, leukotriene modifiers. And what these do is they prevent airway swelling in asthmatics, known asthmatics, before an asthma attack even begins. So, you know, a lot of these drugs are very useful to have, and you definitely don't want your people who have asthma to show up if the you-know-what hits the fan with their last inhaler. You want them to accumulate the stuff, and physicians are usually very sympathetic about giving you extra prescriptions or extra, extra inhalers. Uh, some of these medicines, by the way, are used in combination. So sometimes you'll find a multiple medications in the same inhaler. That's, um, let's see, medications like Advair, uh, Symbicort. These kinds of medicines will be combination-type medications. There are a number of natural remedies for asthma as well. And in survival settings, guess what? You may end up with only these options to help the asthmatics in your family or group. That's true. I mean, you have to think about it in a long-term situation, even a good supply is going to run out, right? And so you're going to have to think of other strategies and avoiding avoiding trigger allergies, allergens. In other words, things that trigger a an attack, that's important. Probably the most important thing, but well, sometimes you cannot avoid those. So what else might help in those situations? Well, various breathing methods are thought to promote health and well-being control the panic response that you see in asthmatic attacks. Asthmatics tend to breathe faster than non-asthmatics, and many also tend to be mouth breathers. And what that does is this exposed by breathing through your mouth, this exposes the lung to cooler and drier air, and that's thought to be a possible asthma trigger. And breathing exercises that encourage shallow breathing at a controlled rate actually may reduce asthma symptoms and the need for medicine. Now, for all this, you need to do it in a certain way. You would inhale slowly through your nose, and then you would inhale through pursed lips, or exhale slowly as if you were going to whistle. When you inhale, your abdomen should expand, not your chest. You want to exhale slowly with your abdomen going inward. Now, that's sometimes hard to get people to sort of figure out. That's maybe not the way they normally do it, well, the truth of the matter is, is that it's best if you make sure that your exhalation is about twice as long as your inhalation. These are breathing techniques that are commonly taught in yoga classes, interestingly enough. There are 
other alternative treatments such as acupuncture that are thought to have some promise in treating asthma as well. You might not believe in stuff like this, but why not use all the tools in the medical woodshed? If some of these might have an effect, well, the truth of the matter is if you've got somebody that knows how to, to do this stuff, why not give it a shot? Use all the tools in the medical woodshed. We say that all the all the time. We're going to talk about some tools also in the form of herbs, and we have some good additions to your medicinal herb garden if you are dealing with asthma among people in your family or your group. There are quite a few substances actually that have been reported to be helpful, but with many of them, well, further research is probably necessary to be sure of the amount of effect they have on severe asthma. So don't throw out your standard medications if you have a significant attacks. So you certainly want to use both, okay? Use the best of both. It's a, it's a marriage. It should be a happy marriage between natural healing and conventional healing. Use all the tools in the woodshed. Now, natural remedies do vary in their effectiveness from individual to individual, so you know, do your own research, come to your own conclusions, but here are some that have been reported to have a beneficial effect. Ginger and garlic tea. Now, if you put four minced garlic cloves in some ginger tea while it's hot, cool it down, drink it a couple of times a day, some people report that they get less attacks. Now, there are other herbal teas that are thought to be very good if you begin to have an attack, to, to decrease the amount of time and, and to make be the severity of the attack. Uh, some of these teas include ephedra. I've got a list here. Ephedra, coltsfoot, butterbur, nettle tea, chamomile tea, rosemary tea. All these have been reported by some to improve asthmatic attacks. Now, one thing that I think is very interesting, and, and I actually believe in this, that black unsweetened coffee it's a stimulant and it might make your lung function better when you're having an attack. Uh, and the thing about coffee is that it's a little bit similar to in chemical structure to an asthma drug, theophylline, a very common asthma drug that was used a lot in the old days and is still in use today. Well, it is very similar. Coffee is very similar in chemical structure to that, so you might consider that. Now, there is an essential oil of eucalyptus that's well known as a steam or direct inhalation to, known to open airways. And so you put a couple of drops in between your hands, maybe two or three, and you rub your hands and then put them to your face and breathe in deeply. Well, indeed, a lot of people do experience relief with that. Alternatively, you can put a few drops of that in some steaming water, sort of cover your head with a towel and breathe in the steam and if you do that that may actually help now of course a lot of people believe in honey and i do too raw and processed honey was used in the 19th century to treat asthmatic attacks some suggest breathing deeply from a jar of honey and you might see improvement so uh, today however most people stir a teaspoon of honey in, let's say a glass of water and they drink it about three times daily there are a lot of other different herbs that are very useful turmeric one teaspoon of turmeric powder and six to eight ounces of warm water three times a day may help. Licorice and ginger, what a combination, huh? Uh, you mix licorice and ginger, about a half a teaspoon of each, in a cup of hot water. Well, it might just work. Now, the thing with licorice, though, that I have to warn you about is that it can raise your blood pressure. It is not uncommon, does not uncommonly stop pressure issues 
and it usually worsens pressure issues, so that's something that's important to know. Now, mustard oil rub, that's something that's useful. If you mix mustard oil with camphor, rub it on your chest and back, well, there are claims that it gives quick relief in some cases. Now, vitamin D, some asthmatics have been diagnosed with vitamin D deficiency. Well, then that is something that might actually work. There's other stuff. There's, I have that, there's one really strange story that I have, and that's on lobelia. Lobelia is actually an herb that was smoked by Native Americans as a treatment for asthma. Well, instead of smoking, why don't you try mixing tincture of lobelia and tincture of cayenne in probably in about a three to one ratio. Put one milliliter, about 20 drops of this mixture in water at the start of an attack and repeat every 30 minutes or so. Worth a shot, I say. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that you shouldn't underestimate the effect of your diet on your condition. Asthmatics should always, well, whenever possible, replace animal proteins with plant proteins, uh, increase intake of omega-3 fatty acids, eliminate milk and other dairy products, eat organically whenever possible, eliminate trans fats, and use extra virgin olive oil as a main cooking oil, and always stay well hydrated. That's the thing. A lot of people, and probably myself included, always are a little bit dehydrated. More fluids will make your lung secretions less viscous. It's certainly something that you should consider. Of course, in normal times, seek modern standard medical care with qualified medical professionals. I don't have to tell you that we are talking about situations where you are thrown off the grid and you're dealing with whatever medicines you happen to have and whatever natural products might and substances might be growing in your area. Hey, you know that I am a big history buff and if you ask people about pandemics, well, that's right up my alley. I can tell you all about a lot of pandemics that have occurred in the past and I find them to be interesting. I hope you do too because we learn a lot if we really remember our past and we learn about what has happened in the past. Sometimes we find things that worked in the past and sometimes we find things that definitely didn't work in the past that we might have been considering trying to do. So if you ask people about the last pandemic, most will say that it was the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919. Certainly that is a well-known example but pandemics have occurred, well, gosh, throughout history. There are at least three or four identified every century. I think more identified lately since we know more and more about viral disease and other kinds of uh, bacterial disease. It can, it can be argued that we've experienced more than one just in the last few years. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, pa pandemics came with regularity and with great severity in ancient times because they didn't have the tools that we had to fight them. Several pandemics became infamous not only due to their, well, their deadly nature, but also their effect on Western civilization really changed a lot of things. The most prominent of these include uh, the Great Plague of Athens. Now, the Great Plague of Athens occurred during the years 430 to 426 BC. That was during the onset of what they called the Peloponnesian War, and that was a war between Athens and Sparta, and of course, all the city-states in between chose sides. The, the, now, this was thought to have, this plague itself was thought to have arisen in Africa and somehow came over maybe with mercenaries or other folks that were involved in, in the war. And the plague killed apparently a third of the Athenian population. A third of the population, 300,000 people throughout the Mediterranean died. And it's thought to have brought about the end of the Greek Golden Age. 
you know, after that era, you really didn't hear much about the Greeks anymore. It probably took them, it, it took the Athenians out of the war. I mean, they lost the war with Sparta, and Sparta wasn't particularly, um, it was basically a military state, and it was not a cradle of democracy like we always consider Athens to be. So that was that. That the plague symptoms in that case apparently included high fever, blistered skin, vomiting, intestinal ulcerations, and diarrhea. So nobody really knows what causes the disease, but some people think maybe typhoid fever, typhus, things that we've talked about on the show before are prime candidates. If you want to know about these diseases in more detail, you can see them in our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Also, you can use the search engine on our website for some of our free articles uh, in a little less detail, but it, certainly you'll learn a lot. Uh, the, there was another plague called the Antonine Plague, and that was known for the Mar Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius. Actually, his real name was Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, so that's why they call it the Antonine Plague. And that outbreak began in the year 165 AD, and it lasted about 15 years and killed about 5 million people from what is now thought to be smallpox. It's believed to have begun in modern-day Iraq. Uh, they called that Mesopotamia back then, and spread all the way to Rome with soldiers that were returning from the wars that uh, of conquest that uh, Romans were engaged in at that time. At one point during the pandemic, an estimated 2,000 Romans died each day, and the emperor himself is thought to have been one of the victims. Then there was another one that involved an emperor, and that was called the Plague of Justinian. And this time, at this point, Rome had split up. In the year 2541 AD, there was an Eastern Roman Empire and a Western Roman Empire. And the Western Roman Empire was just about done, but the Eastern Roman Empire kept going. Well, rats from grain boats, they think from Egypt, brought a pestilence to this area and uh, the main city was called Constantinople and and that's current day Istanbul and that would ultimately leave about 25 million people dead and even the emperor himself for whom the plague was named was infected interestingly enough he survived go figure as many as 5,000 people died each day in the capital city and before the outbreak was over about 40 percent of the city's population was dead so many and so quickly that bodies were left unburied, all just threw them in piles and just let them rot. Not, probably not a good thing for hygiene as well and, or in the general health of the remaining population. Now, the entire Mediterranean coast lost about a quarter of its population, and they think that this was maybe the first recorded case of the bubonic plague. So let's talk about that. Bubonic plague became a major pandemic in the 14th century as we're moving along in time. It came to the west via sea lanes from Asia in that period of time and from 13, the, year, the years 1347 to 1351 it essentially depopulated Europe and much of the world. 75 to 150 million deaths are attributed to it at a time when there were probably only about 450 million people on the planet. So it did a good job of wiping out a major, a lot of the population. Half of Europe died in the span of only four years. Now, the rest of the Middle Ages was racked with all sorts of waves of plague pandemics that just came, came on and on, and you just cannot, could not get rid of it. Over time, it became known as the Black Death for the color of the lumps 
they called these lumps buboes, in the armpits and groins of the victim. It was so devastating that although it's been hundreds of years since the last pandemic, modern, most people in modern times have heard of it. There are even cases of it in the United States occasionally, probably a half a dozen cases every year in the West, areas that are dry and usually are associated with uh, rodents, the uh, vermin of some sort, and not always rats. Now, modern pandemics, we've had all sorts of advances in identifying pathogens, medical research, uh, but these pandemics still occurred. It took a major toll on the world's population. They do so even today. There were a number of modern plague pandemics, and a lot of these occurred in China and the, in Asia. In the 1860s, there were uh, ports around the world that experienced outbreaks of the modern plague, uh, and for about 20 years, about 20 years in a row, there were all sorts of deaths in port cities, especially in China, Hong Kong, those areas. There were about 10 million deaths. And they. this was the first time we were able to identify, we had advanced enough to identify an actual infectious agent. And this infectious agent turned out to be the bacterium Yersinia pestis. That is the bacteria that lives in fleas, that live in, on rats, that causes the plague. Although the, the pandemic eventually died out, infection with this spread to all sorts of rodent populations. Even squirrels and all sorts of other rodents wound up being infected. Uh, the Spanish flu, we talked about the Spanish flu to begin this segment. Well, the Spanish flu occurred as World War I was grinding to a close. As a matter of fact, it may be the reason why World War I ground to a close because it was killing so many people. It was a new strain of influenza and it began to appear simultaneously in multiple countries throughout the world. They call it the Spanish flu, but the truth of the matter is it didn't actually come from Spain. It came from, they're actually not sure where it first originated. The disease spread quickly due to all sorts of cramped conditions that troops on both sides of the uh, of the World War One had to endure. Well, it really is one of the worst ones. Fifty to a hundred million deaths uh, in this in this particular plague. Maybe twenty five million of those deaths just in the first few months. So it killed anywhere between three to twenty percent of the people that were affected with it. It made its way all the way to North America. But it burned out quickly in 1919 for unknown reasons, and, well, I guess, thank goodness that it did. Of course, we've had all sorts of different outbreaks. Most of these are viral outbreaks. They, a lot of them reach the standpoint of, let's say, an epidemic or a status of epidemic disease. Some of them don't actually make it all the way to pandemic. One that has is, of course, human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, and it is a virus that causes AIDS, uh, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. And medicine has made great strides in dealing with disease in developed countries, thank goodness. It is raging still in many parts of Africa where it originated. Matter of fact, over 30 years, at least 60 million people have been infected, 25 million have died. Uh, that luckily is not occurring anywhere near as often, although in places that do not have modern medicine, sure enough, there are still plenty of deaths uh, in, in sub-Saharan African alone. There are 22.9 million cases of HIV. One in five adults are affected, and the truth of the matter is, is that it, they're just not the resources available to help educate people to decrease the frequency of this 
terrible, terrible disease. There are many other diseases that have caused pandemics. Cholera, very commonly seen in India, lots of them in the lots of these epidemics in the 19th century, and millions of deaths. Honestly, uh, it was there was a significant cholera epidemic in Haiti. It stayed in Haiti, however, make, making which made it not a pandemic, and that occurred in 2010. There have been measles epidemics, typhus epidemics, even syphilis has caused major epidemics in over the years uh, and pandemic status for syphilis as a matter of fact. So what disease is going to be the most likely candidate to cause the next pandemic? Well, the answer depends on the level of attention that we place on prevention. Well, the return of historically important pandemics like the plague and cholera still exist. You know, we, they can be treated with antibiotics and that's why it's important to have antibiotics, and that's why we wrote our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. By the way, you can find that on Amazon and also at our store at store.doomandbloom.net if you want an autographed copy. Now, uh, there are areas that have limited access to modern medicine. These are always going to be at risk for these kinds of outbreaks because uh, they're not going to have the antibiotics that are available to nip infections like this in the bud. Might decrease the, the risk if you have them, but are they going to be available in the quantities that you need? Well, the truth is they won't, and so that's why you should have them in your medical storage. Now, could the next pandemic come from a more recently identified disease? Well, if so, it will probably not be bacterial like cholera or the plague. It probably will be viral. We talked about a number of them. Ebola, by the way, was a major viral pandemic. It occurred in 2014. It's still occurring in the Congo today. There have been quite a few deaths, at least a couple of hundred deaths from Ebola just this year in the uh, Congo. And that's where the Ebola River is, where the virus actually originated. But can the organism that causes Ebola actually live outside certain climates? That is a good question. And that limits its ability to be a pandemic and to be actually able to cause outbreaks in a number of different regions of the world. Now, there is something else called sudden acute respiratory syndrome that was known as SARS. That was an issue in the Far East many, uh, well, not many years ago, about a decade ago. It's the reason why you see images of a lot of Asians wearing face masks in public these days. There's one in the Middle East called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS, M-E-R-S. That's a lethal disease, also about 50% death rate related to SARS. That's a problem in many Middle Eastern countries that employ foreign workers. There was a number of Korean workers that wound up bringing it back to Korea from Saudi Arabia just a couple of years ago. Uh, about three or four years ago, there was a virus called chikungunya that came to from Asia and Africa to the South American area, the tropical part of the world, uh, of the Western Hemisphere. That's carried by mosquitoes, and that has ranged far and wide over the Caribbean and uh, other tropical regions in the recent past. That can be called a pandemic. It doesn't kill you, but it causes fever as well as stomach problems, joint problems. Uh, recovery takes months in some cases. And in one time, particular time period, it actually caused a 13% of the population of the, of the Dominican Republic to actually not report to work in a, uh, I think, over a particular week. So it can be pretty darn serious, but fortunately the disease doesn't cause a lot of people to die. Thank goodness for that. Then, of course, the newest member of the pandemic club is Zika virus. That was in 2015 to 2016. It traveled from 
Asia to Africa to French Polynesia, then to Brazil. So multiple regions of the world. That's the definition of a pandemic. And it also was spread by mosquitoes. And it was really a relatively mild infection for most adults. Most adults didn't even know they had it. However, if you were pregnant and you got infected, well, it may have affected your newborn baby. And there were thousands of newborns that were identified with brain defects at birth as a result of the virus. Now, the question is, was it the virus? Because there are other areas that had Zika virus that didn't have as many uh, uh, newborns that wound up with brain defects. So the question is, was it something else? It's still a, a little bit out there in the open, but these kids did wind up showing Zika virus. Uh, the ones that did not survive showed Zika, Zika virus in their brain tissue. So we have to assume the Zika virus certainly had something to do with it. So hard to say what that's all about, but that also was a pandemic. Who knows what kind of pandemics could possibly occur in the future? Let's hope that it's not going to be anything serious and any or anything that we cannot handle. We're doing a lot better with regards to dealing with pandemic disease these days, a lot more isolation beds, a lot more thought put into protocols to deal with people with severely contagious infectious diseases. This is all the time we have for this week. We thank you very much for listening to Survival, the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton and We'll have Amy back next week. Hopefully, she will be caught up. And uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for buying kits for your families. We thank you, and your family probably thanks you as well. You are possibly going to save a life one day in the future. I hope that you never have to use them for a catastrophe occurring in your town. But you know what? It's better to be prepared for the worst and you hope for the best. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. To contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.